I loved Sitt al-Hajja much more than my grandmother Amna or any of the other women in my mother's or my father's families. But I used to hate her when she said, a boy is worth 15 girls at least. I would burst out in anger, no, Sitt al-Hajja, one boy is not worth 15 girls at least, and stamp my foot on the ground with rage. She would stretch out the long, dark fingers of her hand in the air and add, girls are a blight. A boy, the prophet bless him, lifts his father's head up in the world and in the next carries his father's name and hands it down. With a boy, the family household is kept running, but girls get married and go off, leaving the father's house, and their children carry the names of the men they marry. I stamped on the ground with my foot again and screamed out, I will never marry. My grandmother would be seized with a fit of laughter until the tears ran down from her eyes and then say, God has sent you a wonderful bridegroom, a man straight from heaven, and soon we will be celebrating your marriage and your wedding night. I would stamp on the ground several times and shriek, I will never marry, never, 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 never. My grandmother would start laughing again until the tears flowed from her eyes and she almost choked. Marriage is your destiny, like all girls. It's God's will, O daughter of my son. Her voice kept echoing in my ears as I slept. In my dreams, I used to ask myself, what is the relation between God, marriage, and a husband? God appeared in them dressed like a bridegroom. To me, a bridegroom was like one of the dolls which my mother made out of the remains of cloth and stuffed with cotton or old rags, dressed in a dark jacket similar to the jackets worn by my father and my grandfather, and in long dark trousers tied around the waist with a ribbon of black taffeta, with a red fez made out of woolen material on its head. After she had finished with all that, she inserted two black beads into the head for eyes. Welcome to episode 74 of Bulak. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and reading to you just now was Marsha Linksquayle. Hi, Marsha. Hello. Hi. And um, she was reading from Nawal Sadawi's memoir, Daughter of Isis. And we will be talking about Nawal Sadawi, the Egyptian writer, activist, agitator, doctor, um, who passed away earlier this year on today's episode. Um, that was a chapter called Killing the Bridegroom. Um, <laughs> and I, I, re I, re I really like that chapter of her memoir and sort of the way it moves through a lot of different things, um, childhood memories and dreams and um, sort of how a child and then an adult puts together what sex and marriage and religion mean, right? Because yeah. she sort of yeah. goes um, from her from from how she viewed these things as a little girl uh, to how she viewed them as a adult writing woman, but it's all kind of with the fluidity of of memory and and feeling and. I, I like that a lot. And with a lot of uh, sort of still vivid anger. So you, you quote a couple times from it in the essay you wrote uh, recently on Noella Sadewi. And there's, you know, one quote near the end from this same uh, chapter. I wanted to get hold of something sharp like scissors or a razor braid or a pen, plunge it into those eyes, open them the way my sister and I split open the body of the bridegroom doll when we played with it. Um, there's like uh, sort of some kind of redemptive violence 
in in her re- in her imagining these things. Yeah, she she does. She also describes herself at one point. I mean, so she she wrote many many books and many of them autobiographical. Um, so uh, she she revisits the topic of her childhood and how she felt and so on many times. She describes herself, I think, more than once as feeling an anger that that uh, that had been growing in her for years. Um, mm. And uh, I also feel like because this chapter discusses, you know, she talks about how God is like, and a bridegroom are like this doll, this male doll that her mom would make for her. And then she talks about her and her sister tearing these male dolls apart. Um, it reminds me a little bit, actually, of the opening of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan oh. <laughs> series. Because okay. remember, there's the two little girls yes. with a doll. And... And there's this sort of shadow of a scary man. Remember, it's the neighborhood sort of yes. dawn. They lose the doll. I don't know. It's just a, a a random association in a way. But there's something about girls playing with these figures of, of adulthood and sort of trying to figure out how the world works that, that I think is in both. And there's, of course, this sort of feminism and feminist exploration of the of the world that is is there in in both books um of sort of trying to give a i think a female point of view on the world which was very much Sadawi's writing project right right and also this you know the the sort of violence that can be visited yeah you're sort of helpless as a child um and but as you look back on that helplessness how do you how do you come to grips with it? And Sadawi is sort of giving new, fresh agency to herself as a child by, mm. you know, now <laughs> putting uh, the the husband figure into this doll, probably more than she imagined it as a child. You know, as a child, maybe it was much more of an unconscious tearing apart of the doll. Right. And she talks about... I mean, all the elements are, or a lot of the elements of her world are there. Like you said, there's this, there's, there's violence, there's anger on her part. There's this, uh, desire to take things apart, expose the real truth, find mm. the truth, you know, um, they tear the, these, the doll apart looking for his organ, looking for the, right. his missing sexual organ, which they know <laughs> right. is supposed to be there between his legs. Um, and then she compares her writing to poking things, cutting things open, like it's her weapon, you know, to get to the truth. And, um, uh, so, so maybe I should take a step back and. Right. Cause this was one of her later of- projects. Yeah. So yeah, these books were actually written in the '90s. Uh, she wrote these three uh, three volumes of a long memoir, uh, two of which have been translated into English, um, and one of which we just read from. Uh, but this was already when you know she was, I think, probably already in her '60s when she wrote these these volumes and had had already this very very eventful life. Um, so Noel Sadawi was born in 1931 in Egypt in the village of her uh, father's family, uh, Kafir Tahla, I think it's, it was called. Um, 
and uh and like i said she lived a long life she just passed away this this past year um she was the daughter of a uh, enlightened for that time uh education official a young man a man who worked in the education ministry who had come from humble beginnings and gotten an education thanks to his mother uh, and um, a man who was relatively enlightened for his time and educated all of his children, uh, including her. Uh, and uh, her mother, who she loved very much, um, came from a, a more, more upper class but impoverished family and also wanted her children to be educated and is a very big presence in her autobiography and a very sad one because her mother died quite young after having nine mm. children. Um, and there's always this kind of regret that her mother didn't get to have more of a life of her own. Um, and Sadawi also would often uh, insist on mentioning or using her mother's name and talking about um, the erasure of her mother's name. Right. Um, I mean, which of course is something that happens, you know, the world over. But the, you know, she was talking about this already in the fifties. Um, so, so then she, she, and she, she studied as a doctor. She was a very good, strong student, and sort of used education to keep from getting married and keep from um, having the kind of assigned life that she might have otherwise. Um, and so, uh, she was able to go to university um, and. Uh, she, you know, the family wouldn't let her, I think, be a writer or study literature or something, you know, uh, something uh, useless like that. So they insisted right. it's that a bit she impractical. go to, Come on. <laughs> yeah. they insisted that she be a doctor. And so she, she went to medical school, she went to Carr University uh, uh, in, I think maybe she entered in the late 40s, early 50s, she was a student there. Um, and... Uh, but then, of course, she was actually already writing as a university student, like contributing to magazines and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think even earlier than that, as a teenager, she was she was already writing short stories and things. And um, she uh, and so she became a doctor and her early books, the books that sort of really exploded kind of like bombs, I think, when they came out, were based on her experience as a doctor and the things that she observed uh, in terms of uh, sexual violence, sexual, sexual customs, uh, and discrimination between the sexes. Um, and, and, you know, she, one of the things that she's most known for, although it was not the only or particular focus of her early work, I mean, she talked about it, but it wasn't the only thing at all that she talked about was, is FGM, is female genital mutilation, is, you know, the circumcision, as it's more commonly referred to in Arabic, of, of women. And she spoke very forthrightly about the, the pain and trauma and, and discrimination at the basis of this practice. Uh, so that was one of the things in her early books. But they talk about everything. I mean, all, yeah, all sort of sorts of sort of very straightforward sex talk. I mean, there was a long section on the hymen, which I associate much more with sort of like, I don't know, the 2010s. I, I'm sure I didn't know 
properly what a hymen was when I was, I mean, I know I didn't know properly what a hymen was when I was growing up and that I would have been sort of probably mortified to even read about it. Um, and yet her writing on it, you know, much earlier than I was alive is, is so sort of candid and straightforward and explanatory and almost sort of like pre-exasperated, like how can you people not understand that hymens are different in elastic God, you know? Right. So she talks about, I, I mean, so she, she talks about it in the context of there being this huge um, uh, social stigma around women's, uh, if, if women aren't, aren't virgins and completely based around the existence or not of the hymen. And so one of the things that she's trying to explain to people is just the simple fact that some, some women you know, are, haven't had sex, but they don't have a hymen or not the kind that it's already been punctured or it's already worn away or, you know, because she would have clients come to her, um, in despair or in rage because a girl in the family was thought to have not, to not have hymen and therefore the family's honor, so on and so forth. Um, and so she's just trying to explain, but then she has a great line also about the hymen where she says, how can, how can a human being's honor be situated in an organ in their body? And if the hymen is women's honor, where is men's honor? Right. And, and saying things like this got her into a lot of trouble. Right. I mean, it was, it's like such a wonderful, I wish, actually, I wish I had read such a thing when I was younger. I had no idea that the that some people didn't have hymens, that hymens were elastic. If you had a small penis and a woman with a really elastic hymen, no, it's not going to break. That only 30% of hymens, I don't know if that number is, that statistic is still considered medically valid, but but in any case, only some percentage of hymens rupture. Right. Um, because at uh, the time it, you were required basically, and in rural Egypt, the daya, the sort of uh, I don't know how you translate mid midwife mid right person. That, that was her main function <laughs> I guess would be would also be present at weddings and she would be the one who would go in and physically rupture a girl's hymen to then show that you know there had been blood and therefore everything was okay and right. again Sadawi rails against this practice and it's it's health dangers um you know all the complications that can happen from this, and, and right, then, some somewhat unnecessarily like the ugly crone of the dia with their dirty fingernail. Right. I mean, I appreciate her uh, bombast, but uh, you know, she was never someone to. I don't think nuance was what she was going <laughs> for. Right. She she no. was in, always in the opposite direction. In fact, um, but so she. She wrote so the the first book I think that was like a real big sensation. Well, she wrote these memoirs of a woman doctor, but they don't talk that much about the sex stuff. They talk more about the experience of being a female doctor. And then she wrote uh, "Women and Sex," and that right. I think, I think "Women and Sex" was her first big explosive book. Right. Right. And in fact, it was very hard for me to find out the publishing date of it because it seems like it was published in Egypt, but then banned and then published in Beirut and then republished in Egypt later, um, you know, because it was deemed controversial. Uh, but at some point it was published in Egypt. Uh, I mean, it was definitely available in Egypt by the early 70s and 
uh, it got her fired from her job at the Ministry of Health, probably. Right. Uh, and from she was editing a magazine called Health, um, and she had already, according to her memoirs, uh, been uh, sent away from the rural health clinic that she had gone to as a young doctor because she got in trouble with her colleague and the local community for standing up for a woman who was being abused by her husband. Right. And uh, she was reported and sent back to Cairo because she was meddling, you know, uh, in the, in these uh, domestic issues. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so you can see, like, she sort of starts to have confrontation after confrontation with basically the authorities and significant segments of society. So do we know, when, when did she, right, when did she start writing fiction? When did that become, uh, or, or was she always, you know, as a teenager, also writing fictional short stories? I mean, I have, as far as I can tell, my and I of course haven't read all her books because she wrote dozens. But I've right, read she a wrote a fair number. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I would sort of subdivide her writing into maybe three major categories. So there's like light, like autobiography, and sort of lightly fictionalized autobiography. Um, right. And there's a lot of that sort of memoirs or sort of, you know, just like, like the memoirs of a woman doctor, they're not written as like Nawal Isadawi's memoirs, but they're just, she's just created a, an alter ego slightly. Um, and then there's the books that are really based on, on kind of like experience as a doctor and field work and um, that are trying to, they're written for a popular audience. I feel, you know, they're not, academic mm. they're not they're they're she's trying to like influence public opinion um and they're the ones where she just talks very directly about you know sexual dysfunction sexual discrimination forms of sexual violence like all these things that she's witnessed and all these posit like opinions she's arrived at you know right about what the problem is and what needs to be done and and i mean it's a lot of there's a certain amount of denunciation of of what she sees as like very unfair and um damaging right um and then there's a third category of fiction and she writes she starts on those i think after she's written her main medical books like at a certain point i think she stops practicing mostly or at least stops writing mostly based on her practice her medical practice mm. and becomes more of a fiction writer in the 70s and 80s and 90s okay right yeah because it's interesting that i think um so she i i believe she is still this the sort of second most translated author um from from arabic after Nigib Mahfouz, and uh, that her her novels, I think, are are better at this point better known than her than her than certainly than her research or even than her memoirs. Yeah, I suppose so. the The ones that I'm, I mean, the, so there was the Women and Sex, which I'm not sure is available in English. I don't think so. The one that's available in English is The Hidden Face of Eve. Right. Which is, I think, similar to women and sex in a lot of its content and arguments. Um, it's this sort of panoramic view of all the sort of kind of biggest challenges 
that women face. Um, and, um, and then it even includes like chapters on religion and which I find less persuasive than the ones that are sort of more based on her, on her experience in the field, like sort of broader chapters, but also she was, she became interested in socialism. I think there's chapters on uh, the economic position of women. There's chapters on how they're, you know, treated, uh, you know, on, on Islamic discourse about women's rights. Um, and there's sort of historical chapters. There's a chapter about literature where she like slams every Egyptian writer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she just goes through and categorically, not just Egyptian, I think pretty much like she, I mean, she just ends with, you know, there has not been a convincing depiction of a woman's experience in Egyptian literature ever is her, is her verdict. Um, and well, there's actually some very good, criticism of um some like very misogynist male writers of course it's 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 sort of wildly you know sweeping and categorical in its dismissal of like all literature i mean she says like she has like two sentences and she and she says something about tolstoy is like thrown out the window i mean she has right. that tendency <laughs> to sort of you know yeah yeah uh, yeah oh she about whole historical periods about uh, right about many things she goes and she goes big categorical assertions also i mean her discussion mm. for example if you compare her to someone like the moroccan feminist scholar fatima Mernisi, who who wrote you know a bit later but also uh you know so much about uh islamic history and discourse and their relation to women's rights like there's just there's no subtlety in Sadawi's analysis. She's really a polemicist. She's not right. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Um, but that said, like she can also put across a point really well. Often, like say it in a way, and she had the guts to say it. And- Absolutely, and she can definitely sweep you along with her her really big emotion that she puts into the work. Yeah, and she's willing to talk about her personal experience. She writes multiple times about her own circumcision, for example. Uh, She writes about, you know, cases and patients and things that she's witnessed. She's sort of is she's going to graphically lay out the kind of things that she's suffered or other women have suffered, the kind of things that people might want to pretend don't happen or don't happen that much or don't happen in our society. You know what I mean? Um, Right. And... uh, and and also she's gonna like say her opinions, however much they might be considered, you know, shocking or out there or against custom or authority or religion. Eventually, that's the one she got the most in trouble for. Um, uh, but you know, she really, really does not bite her tongue. Right, or at least that's the one that was the easiest grounds on which to to get find her fault in trouble. Her. Right, rather than to say she shouldn't be talking about men with small penises. Right. It's easier right. to say that she... Or, or about authoritarian leaders or about... Right. Um, I mean, she had a real... Like, my impression from reading her biography is that she had a compulsion to challenge authority. Right. I, yes, I mean, definitely. She, she you, you know, again and again in her biography. And she's also... She, she was a very... I mean, she's an a, a egomaniacal person. Like, I mean, I don't mean that... In, in, a, in a very ne- terribly negative way. I just mean she had a huge ego, which is what allowed her to have a kind of extraordinary life. But she was 
I don't know, she had a fount of self-confidence. Like, she, Right, just, like an outrageous amount of self-confidence. Yeah, she really. just gushed it, which is why at a very early age, she seems to have looked around and said, why is everybody treating me like a second-class citizen? I'm amazing. Like, well, you know, she just, <laughs> right, her, her, right. her, her, um, her memoirs are full of this, like, she felt like she was fantastic. And she, I mean, she, and she was smart. She was good at school. She, you know, she was athletic. It seems like she just, and she loved herself. Right. And she was yes. just, I mean, she recognized she was better than, right. she was better than her brother. <laughs> so why didn't everybody else recognize that? Right. Right. And she was outraged. Um, right. Uh, it kind of instinctively um, from from this from this very early age, and then sets out. And then I think also is she's outraged by some of the things that she sees happen to less fortunate women than herself, like starting with right. you know young girls who work in the, her own family house and her relatives' house, and these you know women that she comes into contact in the village and in the clinics. Um, she's just indignant on their behalf too. Right. Generally interested in the stories of women sort of less that she's helping um, rather than interested in sort of things she can build with other women doing similar work. Yes. I would say one of the things, one of her big shortcomings is again, it's it's this ego thing in a way, is that she doesn't seem to really have peers or mentors or be a movement builder. It's it she's a very her sense of exceptionalism also means that she's kind of alone and she ends up more and more alone as her life progresses because she becomes this sort of radical controversial figure who, you know, gets attacked and 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 dismissed uh by conservative forces. But she's not good at sort of having a coalition and a network, it seemed to me, from the beginning. It's it's a very, um, um, I, I don't know, her, her sense of how remarkable she is also kind of seems to, you know, uh, be a shortcoming on her part in terms of like seeing what other people can bring. And she is, yeah, and there's this class element where when she writes about she, you know, women uh, of the people, she can be very sympathetic and, and very observant. And those are the voices that she's, she wants to chat to channel and to champion. Mm -hmm. But if it's other women of her own class and writers and intellectuals, she can never give anybody else credit or even like acknowledge them. I mean, she, right, right. She somewhat erases them from existence in some, in some points. Well, so she has, so she had this, this prison memoir because um, like a lot of Egyptian intellectuals, she was arrested by President Anwar Sadat uh, in 1981 when there was this big crackdown. Um, you know, he was then assassinated uh, that, and, and, and all of these people were let out of prison. Otherwise, who knows how long they would have stayed there. Um, but he, he, he arrested a lot of opposition figures and closed newspapers and closed political parties. And, and Noel Sadawi was also arrested and she was in prison for three months and she wrote this memoir. And in the memoir, it's, you know, she can talk about the warden and the other prisoners, the criminal prisoners, but the, her, her fellow political prisoners only pretty much get mentioned for her to like criticize how, um, 
she has a kind of emblematic Islamist and emblematic communist figure in this story. And they're, you know, ideological and they're like ideological and hypocritical and, uh, you know, um, she doesn't mention all the, you know, famous writers and intellectuals who were also in prison with her and who presumably she might've had interesting conversations about with, and, you know, uh, it, it's only a story about her. And, and, and right. Yeah. I just, it made me remember Rod Bashur writing about being in prison with Latifa Zayat and how Latifa Zayat's laughter was such a, like a big part of their days in prison, but that I don't see Latifa Zayat in, in prison with Noella Sadawi. Well, she was, and she gets name right. checked in this memoir, but then, and so was Safinez Kazem and probably a lot of other people, um, who she doesn't mention. And she talks in theory about the camaraderie of prison, but then she doesn't give any examples of other women bringing anything to any situation. It's always like, and then I had this great idea and then I stood up to the warden and then, you know, the, everybody was falling apart, but I, you know, kept on persevered. And it's, it, it's all, all about her. I mean, you almost, I put this in the article, you almost get the impression she was like the main target of the whole crackdown, the way she tells right, it. Right, you also, right. she doesn't give much context about, you know, that this was happening to a lot of other people. And for all these reasons, it's, it's like, it's, it's, you know, she is being targeted by Sadat. I mean, it, it's still a fairly good book, but again, this I, is her I remember blind spot. really, right. I remember really enjoying it when I first read it. Um, uh, I, I mean, her memoir is is the writing of hers that that spoke to me. Um, and then now, when I reread Women at Point Zero, which is not a book that uh, I think ever spoke to me any any in any case, it really struck me how there is just this one female character. Well, there's the the doctor character who's the frame story, and then there is uh, the the one uh, you know genius prostitute uh, figure. Throughout throughout the book, there are different men who appear in her life, but there she's the only uh, woman, and she's really the only real person on the landscape. Yeah, I mean, Woman at Point Zero is probably her. Well, you tell me. I think it's one of her best known. It is definitely so uh, right, right. But so um, I don't have sort of sales figures, but um, uh, Bhakti Shungrapur and Lily Saint did a, a survey of, of focused on African literature professors, um, uh, it, mostly in the U.S. and U.K., and what, what texts they were teaching. And uh, Woman at Point Zero is, uh, I can't remember, like uh, 16% of all survey respondents taught with this book, which is an enormous amount. If, if you consider, you know, Everybody is making their own syllabus up from scratch. And there's, you know, there's one person who's teaching with Yusuf Idris and one person with Sanal Ibrahim's The Committee, um, a couple, a handful teaching with Mahfouz, but that she, and particularly Woman at Point Zero, I mean, there are some people teaching with Daughter of Isis and members of a woman doctor, but particularly Woman at Point Zero is like this, um, um, like text that stands in for the experience of women of North Africa somehow. Um, and I guess, I mean, to me, there's there's so much that's fascinating about her. And I do really deeply appreciate the sort of like just going right at talking about 
women's bodies. Um, I think that's such an, like a critical and necessary thing still in most places in most of the world to say things like, yes, I menstruate, you know, um, but the, you know, the sort of foregrounding of, first of all, putting her, I think she, you know, there's like her and Nagib Mahfouz as if they sort of speak to each other in any way. I, I mean, if I was going to put her like Ihsan Abdul-Qadus, maybe her, you know, they both wrote polemic and they both wrote fiction. Um, but Nagib Mahfouz, no, he's a different person. And that how she was sort of put forward, like on um, this, the Ladbrokes Nobel list for, for literature. I think that this is like, that's not what she was about and that's not what she was good at. Um, do you think and, and that it's whatever. because they need to fill the woman slot and there's not that much that's been translated? Asya Jabbar, so- uh, some people teach with. <laughs> um, no, I think there's so much out there. But I think part of it, so when I wrote about this coming out, I, I, I um, the, the title of my piece was Frozen in Time, you know, that's like, um, so whatever syllabus they, I don't know, I how how does... How are some of these texts that, you know, they must have read um, when they were students uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, why are they still so fixed on, on the syllabus? There's so much brilliant writing by North African women. I'm not saying don't teach Noella Sedewi. I think she's a super important figure and I certainly, but it would not be Woman at Point Zero that I would teach. Um, and the context would not be her as a literary figure. I was going to say that's the thing is I don't know that I would teach that I would turn to her in a lit class as much as no I think in a class on feminism in a class on modern Egyptian history um, you know and like you said Woman at Point Zero is this book that is ostensibly based on a woman she met in prison but really right. this character that she creates is is a sort of composite because over the course of this very short book this woman has like five completely disparate kind of life experiences that the same woman couldn't even realistically have and she goes through all these highs and lows and different situations and jobs and 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 she's just this kind of ur figure of female suffering and resilience and um it, and it's a it's a short and simple kind of story. I feel like its significance is its context, maybe, and when it was written, and and what it meant. Uh, right. Well, to- she has a point she wants to make, which is, you know, all women are forced to sell their bodies, and prostitutes at least make a living off of it. So stop looking down at prostitutes, everybody. Yeah, I guess. But then, if you're going to make that point through a novel. Rather than a just an essay, or then there has to be something else going on in the novel. I think. I mean, right, right. I I didn't find it that memorable in terms of like what was her personality like? What were the other characters? I don't remember any of them, even though I really just read it a few days ago. Yeah, me too. I also read it recently this summer, and I've I've like forgotten it because I think I start to it to me it becomes such a sort of just a stream of events. Like and then this is going to happen to her, and that's it's all it's all bad things, you know, that she kind of right. stands up to. Though, I, uh, yeah, I also can't even remember. It's like every scenario, every conceivable scenario, 
you know, to show how uh, male society mistreats right. a woman, right. she kind of goes through a woman in in a right in a secretarial position, a woman who's um, who's in a family, a woman who's right. Uh, all, she's all in all these situations, right. sort of in an, and then and then not rather than causal. Right. I mean, overall, for her to be taught, I think there's really interesting things to say about her and and through her work and to find in her work. The other thing, though, that surprises me a little bit is that, you know, these books are now half a century old almost. Um, it, you know, the if you're trying to use them as a window into... I mean, I mean, a lot of the issues they bring up are still relevant, and and of course, this is part of the like social history of of, of Egypt and the Middle East. But you know, to, unless you also include sort of more recent writing, it seems a little bit out of date. Well, it also gives this impression. Uh, I, I'm not saying, yeah, of course, um, people still don't talk about Hymens. I don't know in most places, let's say including Egypt. But but to, yes, to present the story like this without people using, say, smartphones or, you know what I mean, without a sort of contemporary context, it makes everything seem sort of as if the whole of Egypt is taking place in a different time than, than I exist. Right. I mean, and the thing is, you know, the issues are still completely there. I mean, the kind of um, sexual violence and harassment and discrimination that women in Egypt face, particularly from the state and from state authorities in recent years. Yes, is, yes, is yes. just. But then you know, yes. But you need to talk about the Fairmont. You need to talk about sexual harassment and Egypt's Me Too movement. You know what I mean? Rather than completely locating it in. I mean, I don't know yeah, what any of these and, people's and, courses look like, but. Right. No, I mean, we're talking now just generally. And, and I think the other, I mean, the other thing that's, that's problematic about her kind of narrative, and I, and I said this in the piece I wrote, is that to me, you know, her stories also are always these stories of like, like you said, a single woman who like sees through the system and stands up to the system. And again, it kind of erases. And so you have the Western reader who's reading about this terrible place, you know, where where women are so oppressed, and and where they're they're sort of relating to this one heroic woman who, you know, stands up to this and sees through this, and it doesn't give you any sense of this being a much larger historical collective struggle, you know. With, with lots of different participants with different views and different interests and but that you know it's collective and um, I think that for me I find also like unappealing or, or just you know inaccurate if you're good, if you're interested right, in Egyptian feminism right. and in Arab feminism right. and in what it is and how it's right. operated it's not the story of like one one person right. person uh and and what you know and it's also that's how it gets cut you know it's always the noise it's like the one woman who breaks a taboo the woman right. who speaks out right but as Noel you suggest in your piece the right. whatever simone beauvoir of 
the Middle East. Right. It's like there can only ever <laughs> right. be one. Like, <laughs> Right. But that's – so you kind of suggest that in your piece that it is her individual exceptionalism in her internal and external framing that makes her fit so well in, in, a, in a US, UK, Western context. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if there's a kind of simplicity to this. Um, and, and at the same time, what's, what was happening to her in Egypt? So she, she got this huge international profile. She's, yeah, like you say, translated everywhere, read an enormous amount. And she starts writing more and more of these novels. She writes the fall. And also they start, I think, as... I think as Islamism uh, rises in Egypt and in the region, and as you have more terrorist attacks and actual like violent Islamist groups like the Gama Islamiyah, she starts writing more explicitly about like religion um, and she's sort of the, I mean, there's, she's always talked about the nexus between religious authority and political authority and misogyny, but it becomes more her topic. And so she writes a novel like The Fall of the Imam, which... Right. Which it's funny because I remember very, so I had a friend who was a very big fan of Noella Sadawi in university. And I remember very specifically picking this book up myself to read it and being so frustrated by like, what is even going on in this book? I hate it. (laughs) I don't remember what happened in it. I just remember feeling murky and confused and everything was either like a stereotype or I couldn't like get a handle on what was going on. I feel like it starts off fairly strong with this kind mm-hmm. of dystopic Islamic, um, you know, uh, dictatorship that she creates. Um, mm. But then stylistically i think also she must be influenced by you know the kind of writing that was in vogue then um maybe more like south american writing and sort of a more surreal writing it's got this kind of like it wants to be sort of dreamlike it's got a lot of repetition or things being told from different points of view it just kind of completely falls apart for me though like it just becomes a slog like i i can't mm. um and yeah, and it's sort of, you know, there, again, there's a lone sort of emblematic female heroine who stands up to the imam, who is also her lover, father. And I mean, yeah, I don't I don't think it's a, it's a particularly good book. It's part of this pattern, though, where she starts, you know, getting into a very adversarial publicly adversarial relationship with sort of self-appointed guardians of morality. I mean, Mm. she's always been on the outs a bit, but it becomes more and more, um, you know, she gets put on a list uh, of, of intellectuals who are like unbelievers on a kind of blacklist or potentially a target list. And that's why she leaves the country in the early nineties and goes to Duke for a while is because she's actually concerned this because the government actually gives her a, a bodyguard detail at one point um, because people are being physically targeted. Uh, and, right. and there's, you know, it becomes, I think, you know, there's various shakes and people who, you know, if you want to rail against somebody who, some boogie woman, she becomes the boogie, one of the boogie women, I think. 
Um, right. Yeah. She's a pretty easy target, I think. I think she gets into and like she, a public she was, spat with Sheikh Shahrawi, right. the super right. popular and like completely, you know, bigoted uh, TV personality. Um, and then she kind of feeds the process though by continuing herself because she loves an audience and she loves mm. to talk and she loves to provoke. So I do think she also continues to say whatever she wants and continues, you know, maybe even a little bit beyond that to, to purposely kind of poke the bear. Right. Is Which is sometimes, so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I really love about her is this like insistence on continuing to speak her piece. Um, Look, I mean, you know, I, I watched some, some YouTube videos of her talking to audiences like quite late in her life. Um, so even after all of this, uh, it, I think one of them was from like 2015 or something. And, you know, she sits there and it's a, an audience of young people and she's sort of funny and charismatic. And she's, you know, says her piece on everything, including, for example, she tells an audience that is more than half veiled that she doesn't think the veil is a requirement. Like she doesn't think they should be veiling, um, you know, and everybody that that became sort of something that it was hard to say. And I mean, that very few people were willing to make that argument, especially make it to an audience that wasn't completely sympathetic to it. But she has her argument. She says why. She says, like, I don't think that women should be the only ones who have to protect their modesty. Like, what's the rationale underneath it? It's that a woman has to, uh, is so provoking of male desire that she has to cover, you know, to, to, to keep him from, to help him control himself. Why don't they control themselves? Why don't they cover themselves? Like, you know, that's her argument. And it was against the grain uh, of uh, what had become the grain in Egypt for decades by then. But I do think it's a public service to have people out there sort of saying things that that are are different. Um, and she had every right uh, to, to say that. As much as maybe it wasn't a very strategic thing to say and it didn't help her, you know, uh, I, I don't know how persuasive it was to like young veiled women um, how much it helped yeah, her I, like, relate yeah, to right. them or bring them into a feminist conversation, but right or or that that I mean, so my understanding is from um, a younger scholar also is that she could be very patronizing and dismissive uh, of you know women who made different sartorial choices, and she did. Um, oh, I mean, you know, she was patronizing kind of and dismissive of everybody who made different decisions, right. who didn't agree with her, right. basically. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, the one I saw, she's being very quite sort of charming about it. I mean, I think it is maybe maybe it's a little patronizing, but it's it's not dismissive. She's you right. know she's trying to uh, say these things in a way that uh, will keep the audience you know with her, but she does not change she does not not say it for that audience um right no i'm talking about this is somebody who reported on something that happened to them you know right in an off-stage scenario i'm sure i think she must have been very difficult uh and and very high-handed 
sometimes, especially as she got older. I mean, that's also something that ha- happens. Um, I, I think there's something kind of tragic about her whole arc and mm. and where she ended up uh, that, that in a way, the best capacity she had, which is this kind of bravery and this speaking out, um, you know, did not get in the end were sort of not util like weren't there was no place for them. Or she couldn't find it and society didn't want it and she ended up very sidelined, I think, in in Egypt. And then, you know Oh, I think although I think her writing did mean a lot to a lot of young people who sort of came of age in the 90s and read yeah. her works and were changed by it. I've heard that a lot. That's true. I've heard that I've heard that a lot of times. And I've heard also um you know because because basically the media portrayal of her in Egypt became by the end of you know by the end of her career for people who hadn't read her but had just like heard somebody right. rail about her on television that she was this you know crazy un, you know unbelieving atheist radical you know, out there, I feel like we've all had some conversation with somebody where we've mentioned her name and they've just kind of gone, Oh, you know, that she's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, and, 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 and it's always, it can often be quite a surprise. I was talking about this with a friend who said that Noelle Sadawi is like revered in Iran. Like she's widely read and like Iranian what? feminists know all about her. And so this friend had an Iranian friend who came to Cairo and could not, was just could not get over how dismissive Egyptians that she talked to about Noel Sadawi were of her because she thought she was like a national hero and she thought she was phenomenal. So, you know, the perceptions of her, uh, there's a lot of clashing perceptions of her. And I do think also, you know, when people read her and where they read her, but obviously she had a huge impact. I mean, obviously she had a huge impact on a lot of people. I do think that first encounter that you have with her, with her, there's the forcefulness of Mm. her self-expression and this just like will to like, oh, there's a thing I'm not supposed to say. Like, here it is. It's really (laughs) powerful. It's really powerful. Right. Right. I also, you know, appreciate that she never was like, oh, everything, uh, what we want is what women have in X country or things are good over there. Uh, You know, she she was, you know, sort of very forceful about saying, I realize that I'm being utilized to say that Egypt is backwards and other places are forwards. But that's not true. Right. No, she was, I mean, that's the thing that often doesn't get, I mean, she was anti, she was an anti-imperialist, anti-war um mm-hmm. uh, and 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 shaped actually originally in her youth by anti-colonial uh demonstrators she came of age at the end of sort of the colonial presence in Egypt and participated in protests as a teenager and apparently loved it you know again like could <laughs> couldn't wait to be at the front of the march if possible carrying a banner and hopefully the letter up on stage so she can t- I mean this was just she loved I think leading and she was very personally convinced of the of of you know the the cause of egyptian uh sovereignty and nationalism and also she was you know um she visited um palestinian refugee camps in jordan and um she um 
volunteered like all, all the young people her age to like go in Suez during the tripartite aggression and, and fight against the, the invading, you know, European and Israeli forces. So, I mean, she was a nationalist in that sense without being a nationalist who was blind to the flaws of, of various regimes. Um, right. And I, and I, and yes. And I think that she was always because, because she, anyway, she was, I mean, if you're a, she was, she was going to get attacked by conservatives in her own country for being a sellout and a traitor and somebody who, you know, told the West what they wanted to hear. And I'm sure she was aware of that. And she tried to be in that middle ground where she would say, you know, uh, you know, these are all the, these are all the problems that we have here. But you also have problems. Don't condescend to us. I think she was mad at the right. idea of a sort of Western woman who would look down on her and pity her. I don't think she. Yeah, liked absolutely. That. that comes across in the forward to the English edition of I can't remember what. Um, I think the, the other face, face of, of a woman. Eve. I think the uh, hidden yeah. face of Eve, which right. Yeah, yeah. Which I think by the time she wrote the English introduction, she'd already been, I think, sort of paraded around at some of these UN anti-FGM um, things that were, were going on. And they must have, I mean, I'm sure they condescended <laughs> um, without a doubt. It's a tough one, though, because, I mean, again, you get stuck in, if you go to, if you get too defensive, you end up underplaying something forms of discrimination that are really there and and, right. and and that you can't in the name of like national dignity pretend aren't, you know? So it really is a hard place to occupy. And I do think sometimes she solved it in a kind of facile way where she would be, she would say, you know, women in my country are oppressed by the veil, but you're oppressed by too much makeup or, you know, she, she, she sort of looked for an equivalency that was expressed too in a too too simple way, you know. You know, we have right. FGM, but you know, women in the West suffer from clitorectomy of the mind. Well, you know, I mean, maybe we all suffer from disfigurements of the mind, but there's a real particular physical one here, and they're not. It's not all equivalent. Like, um, I, I see what she was trying to do, but I think sometimes it was a little, like I said, facile. Um, Right. I mean, you know, yeah, there's like sophisticated arguments to be made also about, uh, I, I'm sure that some of the people who approached her, at, you know, at these UN events, say in the early 80s, you know, as, approached it from a very essentialist point of view, like, oh, right. you know, you're from Egypt, ergo, rather than from a sort of a structural economic historical point of view um, about why certain whatever things get reinforced. Um, but yeah. yes, when you actually, when you're speaking in the moment off the cuff, I think it's very, <laughs> very hard to make that. And it's very much easier to say, well, there's, there's the bikini uh, and that's uh, because, you know, sort of absolutely beauty standards in, in the West are also disfiguring for, for women. Come on. But um, yes, uh, you can't sort of put all of it in the same bucket and say, here, it, A is B and B is A. Right. And no, but, and, and of course, though, she was, she, she did try to rightly so emphasize that, you know, 
women in Egypt didn't just suffer from some sort of didn't just suffer from cultural oppression. Like there's economic and political oppression and the West is actively contributing to that through like a right. number of policies and in the region through like repeated military intervention. And she was very much against the Iraq war. I mean, and that's important. I think she hammered away at that when, when, uh, when she had the chance. Um, and, right. uh, and I think so there was some, there was some, as you mentioned in your piece, there's some changes made to her work in translation. But I think even more importantly than that is this phenomenon that, um, who is it, Leila Abu Lahod maybe, talks about, which is the way in which you read something, you know, it comes, so when Egyptian women were watching The Bold and the Beautiful, they, as they retold the story to you of what was happening, they sort of put put it in a sort of, so sort of, she had rural Egyptian women who were watching these U.S. soap operas. And they they saw it through the lens of their own experience, and they reshaped the story as they retold it through their own experience. And I think, you know, people reading Noella Sadewi in the West often sort of just forget that she mentioned these structural issues and forget that she mentioned capitalism, um, even though it's there. Well, and like you, you, you wrote about this. There's actually a couple chapters that explicitly address that right. that were removed from her book for the English edition. And which although, is a shame. Yeah, which is a shame because, again, it's she writes well on these subjects. Um, and, you know, she has, you know, there's a classic argument in sort of Islamic jurisprudence that one of the reasons that men get, you know, all these, that they are the sort of guardians and it, they, they, they are above women is it because they economically provide for women, for example. And she taught, and 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 by just making the feminist argument that, of course, women are producing all this unpaid labor in the household, you know, they're not being provided for. They're actually the like most exploited labor in society. Mm, like right. they're the ones, you know, they're the unpaid labor of the family, and and, and that then refers back to you know this 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 specific argument. Um, and then she also talks about, I think, um, economic exploitation at a more global level, you know, right. through colonialism right. and through Western intervention and, and, and about, you know, resources and who has control of them. And she's not an economist. Again, she's not like these are not detailed um, analyses, but they're, they're more like broad stroke critiques. And I, yeah, I don't think this is the side of her, of her arguments that gets the most attention. Right. Um, and it is disappointing that in the updated translation that it simply says a lot of hay was made of the fact that um, a, a more material on FGM was put into the English and these parts about capitalism and colonialism were taken out. That's it. Like a lot of hay was made over it. But then the, then the sentence ends like before it says, but this is why, or but this is who did it, and this is what they were thinking at the time. As yeah, far as I know, nobody's sort of owned up to why. What? Why did they do this? What? What's their sort of self-examination about it? I mean, because maybe she was even involved in the decision, or maybe not. But you'd want to know. Uh, all almost all of her books were translated very well, I think, by her third husband. Um, yeah, I mean, Sharif not Hidata. sort of artistically, but I think, yeah, very in a very straightforward way. 
I don't know. Some of them I think are actually good translations. Like her biographies are long and they read well. The Daughter of Isis and Walking yeah, Through Fire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's some lovely lines. Like, you know, one of my favorites is that I, I can't like remember it off the top of my head, but about her, uh, the dawn of her divorce breaking and how how like how much joy is infused into that sentence. Right. Because uh, although we read at the beginning the the quote about her refusing the idea of getting married as a little girl, she did in fact get married three times and then divorced three times, always her initiative. And uh, and she's always extremely pleased with her divorces. <laughs> she's She's always delighted with her divorce. She talks about they're actually very dramatic stories in the in the biography. Um, uh, you know, her first is to this like young kind of freedom fighter who goes and fights the British in Suez, and then becomes a drug addict and abusive. But she always actually write, sort of writes about him very sympathetically because she feels like he was destroyed by his political disappointment and his drug addiction. And she, she leaves him after having a daughter, and then she has a second marriage to this really awful character who it's her like bourgeois marriage. She doesn't really know why mm. she's doing it as she does it. Uh, she knows it's a mistake. She knows she doesn't love him. And she, you know, she, she just paints him as completely repulsive. Um, and he throws her novel out the window and she jumps out the window to grab the pages and loses their, her pregnancy. Mm. Um, and then, and then she wakes and she's like, I woke up in the hospital and I could see divorce like dawn on the horizon or something. <laughs> yeah. And then when she tells him she wants to get divorced, he says like, you can't ask me. Women don't ask for divorces. Um, it'll be easier for you to, you know, touch the moon than get a divorce. And in her, in her, in her memory, she says she took a scalpel out of her bag and she was basically ready to stab him. And she looked so murderous that he gave her the divorce. This is how she tells the story. And she divorced her third husband after 46 years of marriage when she found out he was having an affair. And again, in these talks where she's giving to the young people, she's, you know, she's delighted with her third. She's like, yeah, I divorced him, you know? Right. right. Because I'm a woman who needs her dignity. And, right. And uh, she's really quite a character. Definitely. Definitely. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad that I've read her except for The Fall of the M.M. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, her passing away, there's a lot of initiatives, I think, right now um, to look back at her work, discuss her work, and I think that's great. I mean, she has such a – there's so much there, both in, in her, her biography and and then she produced so much. It's really kind of like a, a sort of big, fascinating field to – to, to look around in. Um, and I particularly enjoyed these, these long biographies that she wrote towards the end of her life because they're also like cover so much of like so many scenes and places from modern Egyptian history, like what right. it was like to be a university student in the fifties, you know, what it was like to be a doctor in the sixties. There's just, and, and it's, it's really evocative. She goes into a lot of detail. You get a real sense of time and place um, so I think in the cat, like as, as bio, as biographies of 20th century that give you 20th century Egyptian history, they're, they're really strong, interesting texts. Mm. 
Yeah, and I would just add that, um, so Samah Salim is going to be giving a masterclass on Noel Sadawi through the Radical Books um, initiative, and we, we can add that in the show notes for people who are interested in hearing more about Noel and her work and her impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's coming up um, this November. month? November, next month. Okay, well, great. So you have time to read a, read a book or two of hers. Yes, Cool. Um, all right. Well, I think we'll wrap up now. Yes. Thank you so much for all the work that you put into this. And of course, people should go read your piece. Right. Well, see, I just know what I'm talking about this time because I just read about it. And we had to have the episode now while it's still fresh in my memory. I'll have forgotten all of this soon. Um, no, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed reading and, and writing about her. I think she's an interesting figure to kind of tackle um all right well it was great talking to you and um we'll be back in a couple weeks goodbye for now goodbye bye